Hi, and welcome to Halfway History. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kylie. And this is a show where we talk about the upcoming week, but a long time ago. And sometimes not so long ago. And sometimes very long ago, both historically and continuity-wise for us. Well, we lost the first half of our audio for this episode the first time around. So this is take two. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, we only have to record the first half again. But And also I was going for the fact that we haven't been around since November. Well, yeah. Yeah, no, so we... Yeah. Uh, took advantage of the current housing market mm-hmm. and put our house, our condo up to see if it would sell and for how much, because our neighbor sold for a lot more than they bought it for. And we're like, oh, this could be an opportunity. <laughs> hmm, we could try this too. <laughs> it sold in four days. So we had a panic moment where we were like, huh, are we going to be homeless? <laughs> yeah. So uh, we were really panicked, hence why we haven't been around. Yeah. For anyone who um, may also have been in the same boat, it was things sold so fast that by the time something came on the market that we wanted to look at, it was gone before we could even go see it. Yep. So we started putting in offers on things before we saw them. Yep. (laughs) Waving house inspections. Dangerous. We were desperate. But we ended up with a wonderful house. Yes. So we are very fortunate. Yes, we're very happy. And it comes with a mostly finished basement, which has become our podcasting studio. Yeah, we spent a lot of time building uh, sound absorption panels. Jonathan was out on the porch sawing wood to make them frantically before the blizzard hit. (laughs) In retrospect, I probably should have gone and bought a power tool, but... (laughs) Yeah, hand sawing, I might add. (laughs) Yeah, and we made six of these. Yeah, but they look pretty nice. They are really nice, And only some of them are slightly wonky. And hopefully with all that upgrade, this area sounds really nice compared to what we used to be doing. Who knows? Maybe the mastering I was doing was getting rid of all of the little inconsistencies about our last place, but <laughs> at least the raw recording now sounds really nice. That's good. Woohoo. Yeah. I'm glad that our effort was not futile. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I would have been very upset if I spent all that time helping like measure and hang all these things. Yeah. And then you were like, oh, it didn't make a difference. I think it'll make the most difference when we go to record our other show. Yeah. Half Wits and Phil Kretz, our actual play show. When there's like six of us in one room. Yes. I I think that'll be where we really hear the difference. Because right now when it's just us two, it's pretty easy to isolate a lot of stuff. Yeah, definitely. Anyways, we should get back to the show that we haven't done in forever. Yes. Um, So... Kylie's just pointing at me, and I'm not sure what she's hinting at. <laughs> uh, we, It's going to be the Kylie show for a bit. Yes. <laughs> yes, because um, I have, same with, with that show, the Halfwits and Field Crits, um, I have currently edited over eight hours of content to launch for our new season that happened on January 1st. And I still have like 12 hours of content left to edit there. <laughs> and it's not going to get easier because... I am doing music, like custom music and yeah. sound effects and all that for our new show, our new episodes that are coming out. So it's only going to get more bogged down. But for a little while, at least, we're just going to have Kylie do topics and I'm going to be your colorful commentary. <laughs> Plenty of commentary to go around, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm going to have to lift lift uh, my own weight here in a very different way than I'm used to. <laughs> 
Alrighty then. Um, what, what week are we doing since we were behind when we got behind? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so this is for the week of October 5th through the 11th. Ooh-wee. So spooky season. Spooky. Oops. Ooh-wee. It's Halloween in January. <laughs> oh boy, we have a lot of work to do. Yes. All right. Well. We're glad so, to be back though. Yes. So just diving on in. Uh, this week, since it is all me all the time, at least for now. I decided to go with a topic I've been dying to cover. So on October... <laughs> dying to cover? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> See, you didn't catch that the first I time around. I didn't catch that the first time around. You guys are getting primo me and Kylie right now. <laughs> it's also like 10 a.m. and I'm like in rare form this morning. All right. We gave the dog a bath and that was probably what did it. So on October 6, 1889, the Moulin Rouge opened in Paris, France. Moulin Rouge. Yes. So now I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with the 2001 movie starring Ewan McGregor and Nicole Kidman. Um, And if you aren't, go watch it. It's good. It's very good. So the film is a jukebox musical romantic drama directed, co-produced, and co-written by Baz Luhrmann. Boy, was he busy. Impressive. Yeah, I didn't. I don't think I realized how much he did on that. I kind of just assumed he directed it. So unlike other jukebox musicals like Mamma Mia, uh, Moulin Rouge doesn't confine itself to the works of one band, singer, or songwriter. And because I went down a 20-minute rabbit hole on jukebox musicals, I have a couple of little quick fun facts for you. Hey, aren't we supposed to do these at the end? I know it's been a while, but... Well, these are... Topic specific fun facts. Oh, Therefore, I decided okay. they can fit here. Also, I just want to talk about musicals for a hot minute. Okay, fine. Be that way. <laughs> uh, in Europe in the 17th and 18th century, many comic operas were produced that parodied popular songs of the time uh, by performing them with modified lyrics. Think Weird Al. Right. The Beggar's Opera in 1728. The first ballad opera and the most famous has been called, quote, the original jukebox musical. And for anyone desperately trying to think of what might have been the first jukebox musical film, An American in Paris in 1951, Singing in the Rain in 1952, Rock, Rock, Rock in 1956, and Rock Around the Clock, also in 1956, are all early examples of this style on film. I've seen Singing in the Rain. Have you seen any others? Um, I think I've seen An American in Paris. Or I don't know if I've seen the original. I might have seen, like, a newer version, though. Okay. Yeah. Um, So jukebox musicals really exploded in the the 2000s, uh, due in no insignificant part to the popularity of Mamma Mia in 1999. So, like, literally, (laughs) verge of the 2000s. You know, it just hit me, like, why it's called jukebox musical. Uh-huh. And it makes a whole lot of sense. I don't think I ever would have assigned that word to these types of movies myself, but now that I am hearing it, it makes a lot of sense why yeah. they call it a jukebox. Yeah, because it's, it's popular songs that you know, you'd know you find on a jukebox, especially when these kind of started popping up, Yeah, that people enjoy, but then they're stuck into a plot for the most part. Right. <laughs> So some of the standouts from the 2000s are Jersey Boys, of, uh, which follows Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons, Good Vibrations, the Beach Boys, Ring of Fire with Johnny Cash's music, Rock of Ages, which focuses on the glam metal of the 1980s. Heck yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, everybody's favorite, Xanadu, mm-hmm. <laughs> which uh, follows the Electric Light Orchestra and Olivia Newton-John. 
Cool. And that's just on the stage. Right. Uh, Jukebox musicals have only grown in popularity in the last decade with shows like The Bodyguard, which has music from Whitney Houston and then is also based on the 1992 movie The Bodyguard, which also has music from Whitney Houston. Yeah. So it's just like a big circle. Uh, Soul Sister, which music of Tina Turner. Motown the Musical. Can you guess? Motown. Good job. Uh (laughs) Aha. On Your Feet, which features the music of Emilio and Gloria Estefan. And then... My favorite, Escape from Margaritaville. <laughs> Yay, Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> Woohoo, James Buffett. James Buffett. <laughs> um, and then there are so many more. So if you're interested in that, just Google jukebox musicals, and you can also go down a 20 plus minute rabbit hole. <laughs> okay, so back to the actual topic. The Moulin Rouge was co founded by Charles Ziedler and Joseph Aller as a cabaret. They had also opened the Paris Olympia, which was a concert venue in 1888. It saw many opera, ballet, and music hall performances and was later converted into a cinema at some point in the early to mid-1900s before it reopened as a concert venue in 1954. And since then, it's become oddly popular with rock bands. Ah, okay. Which I thought was interesting because that's not what I would have expected from something called the Paris Olympia. Yeah, true. Uh, The Moulin Rouge, however, has kept pretty much to its original origins. Situated close to the Montmartre in Paris's 18th arrondissement, it is marked by the iconic red windmill on its roof. Yeah. Unfortunately, the original burning actually burnt down in 1915, but it was pretty quickly rebuilt in the same style, and it kept that iconic windmill. Good, good. I know, you can't really have the Moulin Rouge without that giant windmill. So, Ziedler and Aller were shrewd businessmen, and they knew what the people wanted in a show. The aim was to allow the very rich to come and slum it in a fashionable district, Montmartre. The extravagant setting, where the garden was adorned with a gigantic elephant, just like in the movie, allowed for people of all walks of life to mix. Workers, residents of the Place Blanche, artists, the middle classes, businessmen, and elegant women, as well as foreigners passing through Paris, all rubbed shoulders together. Nicknamed the First Palace of Women by Aller and Ziedler, the cabaret quickly became a great success. The rise of the Moulin Rouge coincided with La Belle Epoque, a period characterized by optimism, regional peace, economic prosperity, colonial expansion, and technological, scientific, and cultural innovations between 1880 and the outbreak of World War I. Very cool. Yeah. So it was honestly a really cool time to be in Paris, Um, at least I imagine. It was later named La Belle Epoque when it became to be considered a golden age in contrast to the horrors of World War I. Additionally, the Eiffel Tower was constructed in 1889, epitomizing the spirit of progress along with the culturally transgressive cabaret. Another cultural influence at its height at the time was Japanism, which is an artistic movement inspired by the Orient, with Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec as its most brilliant disciple. And I'm assuming that's the same Toulouse-Lautrec that John... Leguizamo. Leguizamo plays in the movie. Um, So I learned something new. I had no idea he was based on a real person. Yeah, me neither. (laughs) Um, And in our defense, at least I know I never studied post-impressionist art. I'm assuming you didn't either. You don't know that, and I will admit to nothing. (sighs) Well, um, as I'm sure all art lovers are currently screaming into their phones and or computer screens right now, Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec was one of the best-known painters of the post-impressionist period. Anyway, back to my point. Montmartre 
retained a bohemian atmosphere where festivities and artists mixed and with pleasure and beauty as their value. Kylie said anyways back to the point really fast because this was the time in our last recording where I said, oh, looks like Kylie gets to be the halfwit this time for (laughs) once. I know you didn't study post-impressionist art, Mr. Engineer. Hmm. (laughs) Anyway, so what made the Moulin Rouge so successful? The building itself was a revolution in architecture from Adolphe Willette and Edouard Jean Neerman that allowed for rapid changes of decor and a space where everyone could mix, patrons and performers alike. Ziedler and Aller also planned extravagant events like festive champagne evenings where people danced and were entertained by amusing acts that changed pretty frequently. The Moulin Rouge also originated the modern form of a unique dance that everyone is still familiar with. Everybody can can! Yes. Uh, Originally introduced as a seductive dance by the courtesans who operated from the site, the can-can dance review evolved into a form of entertainment of its own and led to the introduction of cabarets across Europe. Very cool. And for anyone curious, the can-can was inspired by the quadrille. And if you need to know more about that, go to Google. I looked it up and was like, I have no good way to explain this. (laughs) (laughs) And if you want to hear Kylie play a courtesan. Nope. (laughs) No plugs here, mister. Where I awkwardly try to flirt with you, my fiance, on air, and it failed. (laughs) It was bad. (laughs) I mean, that also happened in our our first campaign, too. That was the other campaign. Yeah, you're right. Yep. No. Apparently, I can't flirt on cue. (laughs) Mm -mm. Uh, So the Moulin Rouge also featured famous dancers who brought audiences and press to the cabaret. And many of the dancers who got their start at the Moulin Rouge went on to greater fame as well. Louise Weber, who went by the stage name La, La Goule, meaning the glutton, <laughs> oh. began her dancing career at 16 by sneaking out behind her mother's back to dance at small clubs around Paris. She gained popularity quickly, due in no small part to both her dancing skills and her charming, audacious behavior. In her routine, she would tease the male audience by swirling her raised dress to reveal the heart embroidered on her knickers and would do a high kick while flipping off a man's hat with her toe. Oh. (laughs) Like, that's pretty impressive to me anyway. Her stage name stemmed from her frequent habit of picking up a customer's glass and quickly downing its contents while dancing past his table. Hence, the glutton. Yep. (laughs) She met the Montmartre painter Pierre-Auguste Renoir. Does that name ring a bell? No. He's another post-impressionist painter. Renoir is a name that I am familiar with, and I was like... Oh! (laughs) Damn. Dang. Renoir introduced her to a group of models who earned extra money posing for the community's artists and photographers, and in an interesting crossing of paths, that's how she met Achille Delmet, who would find fame with his nude photographs of her. If his name means nothing to you, don't be surprised. It's his wife that's of real interest. Oh. Marie Juliette Louvet was the mistress of the then unmarried Prince Louis II of Monaco and was the mother of his only child, Princess Charlotte. None of it rang a bell to me no. either. <laughs> okay, well. Yep. <laughs> anyway. I'm back to half-wit status. This is fine. all very new. <laughs> all right. I can quote the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I Yes. Didn't I show you the, didn't me and Anne-Marie show you the movie for the first time? No, I had seen the Moulin Rouge before. before. Yeah. Oh, okay. For some reason, I feel like I thought you were like, I've never seen this. And no, we were like, I. You I, have to watch it. I think I didn't remember anything from it because oh, it had been I mean, so long. You probably thought it was a fever dream. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> anyway. And as you know of my taste now, I regularly like to hunt out 
media that makes it seem like it's a fever dream. <laughs> You're not sure if it was real or if it was all hallucinating. <laughs> Fully coolie. Yeah. So Luis Weber teamed up with Jacques Renaudin, a wine merchant who danced in his spare time under the stage name Valentin Le Desossé. The pair began dancing at the Moulin Rouge when it first opened, performing an early form of the can-can known as the Shahut. The two were instant stars, but it was Weber who stole the show with her outrageously captivating conduct. Again, stealing people's drinks and guzzling at the table. <laughs> I mean, that's the real gig, is if you can do your job and eat things that other people <laughs> paid for, yes, that is what you do. Yes, uh, so booked as a permanent headliner, Lagoule became synonymous with the Cancan and the Moulin Rouge nightclub. The toast of Paris and the highest paid entertainer of her day, she became one of the favorite subjects for Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec, immortalized by his portraits and posters of her dancing at the Moulin Rouge. Interestingly, she was also an open lesbian, her girlfriend being La Môme Fromage, which means the cheesy girl. <laughs> yeah. Um, another famous Cancan dancer at the Moulin Rouge. So another dancer made famous at the Moulin Rouge and by Toulouse-Lautrec's paintings was Jane Avril. Born Jean-Louise Baudin, she was the daughter of a prostitute coined La Belle Elise and an Italian aristocrat named Luigi de Font, who separated from her mother when she was about two years old. So after an abusive childhood with her alcoholic mother, Avril ran away from home and was eventually admitted to the hospital with the movement disorder known as St. Vitus's Dance with symptoms that included nervous tics, thrashing of limbs, and rhythmic swaying. What the heck is that? If you want to learn more about this, check out episode four, Dance Dancing with the Plague? Devil. Oh. Dancing Plague. Oh, yeah. wow. Callback. Interesting. <laughs> uh, yep. It was another, St. Vitus's dance was another term for For dancing, dancing plague. plague. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was twisting around in my head. But again, <laughs> we haven't done this in so long. I could see your brain like blowing out steam. Like, I know this. What is it? <laughs> um, so under the care of Dr. Jean-Martin Charcot, the expert on, quote, female hysteria, cough, not a real thing, cough. Bad, bad, bad. <laughs> she received various kinds of treatment and claimed in her biography that when she discovered dance at, at a social ball for employees and patients at the hospital that celebrated Mardi Gras, she was cured. Oh. Although a modern biography of her argues that this story is unlikely as she was discharged in June of 1884, months before any Mardi Gras celebration would have taken place. Mm. <laughs> so, anyway. Sus. <laughs> sus, yeah. Avril sus. But whatever the truth of her affliction, she incorporated many of the mannerisms into her dance style. She was certainly known for un her unusual style, which was described as, quote, an orchid in frenzy. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, extremely thin and, quote, given to jerky movements and sudden contortions, she was nicknamed La Melanite after an explosive. That's so, cool. Yeah. I, I, I am totally down for all of those things. Yeah. It sounds very unique, and I'm all about that. It. Uh, she sure was. So upon leaving the hospital, Avril worked whatever day job she could find, spending time as a secretary, an acrobat, a horse rider, and a cashier, all while pursuing her dance career at night by performing in local dance halls and cafe concerts. In 1888, she met the writer René Boulis, who became her lover. He was the one to suggest the stage name Jane Avril, under which she, she built a reputation that eventually allowed her to make a living as a full-time dancer. She also added some more nicknames, including L'Etrange, meaning the strange one, and Jane LaFalle, meaning Jane the crazy. 
Good, good. <laughs> Hired by the Moulin Rouge nightclub in 1889, within a few years, she headlined at the Jardin de Paris, one of the major cafe concerts on the Champs-Élysées. To advertise the extravaganza, Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec painted her portrait as on a poster that elevated her status in the entertainment world even further. In 1895, when Lagoule left the Moulin Rouge, Avril was chosen to replace her. So basically, being the poster on the poster of Toulouse-Lautrec pretty much made your career in the Moulin Rouge. Okay. Is what it seems to seems to be. Yeah. Avril presented a different facade than Weber had, but nonetheless the club's patrons adored her and she became one of the most recognizable names of the Parisian nightlife. So she had a brief affair with a younger dancer at the Moulin Rouge, had a son from another affair, and then ultimately married the French artist Maurice Biasse. Zaza Gabor played Avril in the original Moulin Rouge film in 1952. And Avril was a very loose basis for Nicole Kidman's Satine in the 2001 Moulin Rouge film. Interesting. Yeah. I feel like Satine was kind of a combination of, like, probably all of the different headliners at the Moulin Rouge. Just kind of, like, as an embodiment. But, like, um, Avril had this kind of, like, not sickly demeanor, but that much more, um, like, delicate, I guess, kind of feel going on. Frail. Yeah, frail. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. That's the word I wanted. Um, which Satine in the movie has because she has tuberculosis. <laughs> uh-huh. Consumption. <laughs> yep. So as you can probably tell, artists at the time understandably loved the Moulin Rouge. Uh, Toulouse-Lautrec, as well as many other artists, played a large part in promoting the Moulin Rouge and its performers. When the Moulin Rouge opened, Toulouse-Lautrec was commissioned to produce a series of posters, and in return as well as being paid, the cabaret reserved a seat for him and displayed his paintings in the, like, building hall itself. Um, it would be his depictions of the performers of the Moulin Rouge that would catapult the cabaret to international fame. Now, just, like, one side note is, like, the picture I'm thinking of, like, with the lady in the red dress with her leg all the way up, is that, like, a Toulouse poster? Probably. Like I always, that's the one that I always think about whenever I see like uh, like Moulin Rouge type drawings is like that that lady like leaning back like with her leg up and really long flowy dress. Um, I don't know if that one specifically was Toulouse Track, but but is I it associated have... with the Moulin yes. Rouge? Okay, because yeah. like my my yeah, brain is telling me that. Yes, yes, yeah, it is. Yeah, most of those like posters or paintings of or whatever of what looks like someone doing a can can all pretty much come from uh, the Moulin Rouge. Okay, cool. After World War I, the Moulin Rouge changed hands, Ziedler having died in 1897, and Francis Salaber took charge. A businessman rather than a showman, he gave Jacques Charles, the leading impresario of the time, the task of reinvigorating the cabaret. The Moulin Rouge took off again thanks to stars such as Mistinguet, Jean Aubert, and Maurice Chevalier and gave the first showing in Paris of American Reviews with the Hoffman Girls. This period also brought performances beyond cabaret, including the review Lou Leslie's Blackbirds, starring jazz singer and Broadway star Adelaide Hall in 1929, with a troupe of 100 black artists accompanied by the Jazz Plantation Orchestra. Oh, cool. Yeah. So it was a relatively, well, I'm not going to say a relatively inclusive place to perform, but they did bring in non-white French people. <laughs> well, well, didn't you say at one point that, um, uh, what's her name? It literally our last episode. 
Oh, Josephine Baker. Yeah, Josephine yeah. Baker. Did she perform at the Moulin Rouge? I thought you mentioned that. Yes, but we'll get we'll oh, she's you're mentioned getting there. again okay. later. Geez, way to spoil this the plot, Sorry. Jonathan. <laughs> um so during World War II, the German occupation uh the guide Ariane counts the Moulin Rouge among the must visits in Paris. Its famous stage shows continued for the occupation troops, which were mentioned in various autobiographies of German officers like Ernst Junger and Gerard Heller and others. In 1944, Edith Piaf successfully relaunched her career at the Moulin Rouge after having been deemed a traitor and a collaborator with the German occupiers. Her career had gained momentum during the German occupation, with Piaf performing in various nightclubs and brothels frequented by and or reserved solely for German officers. She had to testify before a purge panel as there were plans to ban her from appearing on radio transmissions, like, at all. Oh. Yeah. However, her secretary, André Bigard, a member of the Resistance, spoke in her favor after the liberation. According to Bigard, she performed several times at prisoner of war camps in Germany and was instrumental in helping a number of prisoners to escape. Good, good. So that's good, yeah. Her successful shows at the Moulin Rouge with Yves Montard quickly returned Piaf to the entertainment business and produced a love affair that would last until Montard became nearly as popular as she was. And luckily it did, or we never would have been gifted her signature song and France's unofficial national anthem, La Vie en Rose. Oh, interesting. Yep. La Vie en Rose was the song that made Piaf internationally famous with its lyrics expressing the joy of finding true love and appealing to those who had survived the difficult period of World War II. And I think it came, I think it was officially like, um produced in 1946 so it would have if she got disbanded from radio we never would have gotten la vie en rose i'm what just it, saying all, all those people who may be listening out in france maybe you think you're uh conservative and all that stuff and you love your country and all that it all started in a brothel <laughs> essentially just saying Anyway, <clears throat> I, I don't think people realize how many good things come from uh, body performative art. <laughs> anyway, the post-World War II period saw further renovations at the Moulin Rouge and a return of the evening dances, the acts, and the famous French can-can. The 25th Bal de Petite Lit Blanc, organized by the novelist Guy Descartes, takes place at the Moulin Rouge on May 19th, 1953, the performance was presented for the French president, Vincent Auriol, and included the first European performance by Bing Crosby. Oh. My favorite. <laughs> I made Jonathan watch The White Christmas with me the other day. It was wonderful. You say made as if I didn't want to. That's true. I Probably if I had made you watch it more than once, you would have been irked. <laughs> well, you know I don't like watching any movie more than once, really. That's true. Um, the evening attracted 1,200 artists and stars from around the world, including Josephine Baker, who sang J'ai du amour. There it is. Yep. Sorry the... for spoiling. Surprise. <laughs> Surprise. The following years saw a succession of famous performers and numerous renovations, including the 1962 edition of a giant aquarium and the first aquatic ballet. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So I just want to throw out some highlights of events um, and performances at the Moulin Rouge, just because there's a lot of them, and I just want to hit like the ones I like. Uh, 1970 saw the 90th anniversary and had Ginger Rogers on stage for the first time in Paris. I recognize that name. Why? 
Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire were like the big like dance couple. Yes. Um, Ginger Rogers was a major like film dancer. Um, also, the Village People, <laughs> okay. which was random, and um, many others. It's but- so weird when you know. I- probably get this all the time just you know talking about history and being on a history podcast but it's so weird to think of how many things coincided yep like i i didn't think that i would go that i would hear you know village people in moulin rouge in this episode like or yeah or village people from moulin rouge I yeah say. <laughs> in relation to yes um on november 23rd 1981 the moulin rouge closed for one evening to present its show to her majesty queen elizabeth ii uh, Liza Minnelli performed a one-off show in February of 1982. The Moulin Rouge also hosted occasional galas for celebrities. In 1984, uh, saw galas for both Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra. Interesting. Cool. In 1986, the world's most famous classical dancer, Mikhail Baryshnikov, created an original ballet by Maurice Bejar at the Moulin Rouge. So, you know, famous, internationally famous ballet dancer created a dance just for them. <clears throat> in 1988, the Moulin Rouge turned 100, despite the original building burning in 1915. Uh, this anniversary was celebrated with the premiere of the Revue Formidable as a, quote, royal variety performance in Paris. Um, a prestigious official event in Britain attended each year in London by a member of the royal family. For the second time, the show took place in France at the Moulin Rouge. So twice it was done at the Moulin Rouge. Neat. Yeah. Um, Previously, it was presided over in 1983 by Her Royal Highness Princess Anne, and in 1988 by His Royal Highness Prince Edward. And in 1994, Elton John performed a private concert at the Moulin Rouge as part of the Cartier Gala in aid of the Artist Foundation Against AIDS. Today, the Moulin Rouge is still running, a living legend welcoming over 600,000 visitors every year. Shows called reviews or performances divided into several scenes that are performed while patrons are dining, think medieval times-esque kind of thing, Yep, um, are still going strong, retracing the Moulin Rouge's history night after night. The Moulin Rouge is rated number two out of 288 concerts and shows in Paris as of January 1st, 2021. Whoa. Yeah. Their website suggests booking ahead of time as shows tend to fill up fast. Hey, 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 you said you said 2021. We're supposed to be pretending that we're all the way back in October still, right? <sighs> and now I'm already planning our next v- vacation for before we have kids. <laughs> oh, boy. And that's the Moulin Rouge. You cannot tell me you would not enjoy a vacation to the Moulin Rouge. Sure. That'd be fun. <laughs> that's That's that. Cool. So... What happens now? What do we do? Call to action. Call to action. <laughs> yeah. At least one of us remembers how the show goes. That's good. I oh man. Okay. So our call to action. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Halfwit History. You can visit our website at www.halfwit-history.com. If you'd like to support us financially, which we're not saying you should, it's still a pandemic and probably a lot of you are a lot worse off than we are. But yeah, that's true. We if, did just buy a house. <laughs> yeah. If, if you do think that we deserve a little a little something on the side, we have a Ko-Fi at ko-fi.com forward slash halfwit history. You make us sound like we're someone's mistress. 
A little something on the side. I mean, we just talked about a lot of mistresses. That is true. We did. <laughs> Gotta play the part. We covered a lot of mistresses. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and if anyone has any interest in reaching out and contacting us, um, any topic suggestions, feedback, just general comments or encouragement, we would greatly appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, you can contact, contact us at halfwitpod at gmail.com. Correct. <laughs> Good job. You did better than me as than remembering what needed to come next. Yep. You know what happens now? Do fun facts happen now? Yes. <laughs> I got confused because we did them at the beginning of the episode. No, I had some topically specific fun facts. Hmm. It's not the same. Okay, I'm going to go first. <laughs> go for it. Uh, so on October 10th of 1985, Orson Welles, the American actor and director of, of things like Citizen Kane and War of the Worlds, Dies of a heart attack at 70. Oh. Yep. Just wanted to bring that up because he did cool stuff in radio. So, uh, and also last year when I was doing topics in October, mm -hmm. I exclusively did deaths. So, got to stick with that tradition because it's spooky uh. season in January of 2021. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, my fun fact is October 8th, 1982. Cats, based on Old Possum's book of Practical Cats by T.S. Eliot, Opened on Broadway and ran for nearly 18 years before closing on September 10th, 2000. Did you just tell me that an opossum wrote cats? An old possum's book of practical cats. So I guess yes. <laughs> or maybe the person's name is possum? I don't know. I've wow. never read it. <laughs> now we know that it's actually told by another animal. That would make it all make a lot more sense if we're being honest. Yeah. It's... Interesting. Anyway, Andrew Lloyd Webber, wonderful cool. genius that he is. Also mildly insane, question mark? Uh, <laughs> Please I don't think, sue us. <laughs> I think mildly is putting it mildly. Oh, no. Now you're really going to sue us. <laughs> Andrew Lloyd Webber, I love you. Please don't hurt me. <laughs> oh, and thank you to the fishermen for the use of our theme song, Another Day. You can find their SoundCloud down in our show notes. I remember. Good job. It just came to me, just all the words. I just saw them in front of my face, and I had to say them. They were your destiny. They were my destiny. <laughs> we're back in business, people. Anyway, how do we wrap this show up? <laughs> well, I say thank you for listening. As always, I've been your halfwit. And I'm your historian. And we hope you see... <laughs> And we hope you see us next week. Join us on Zoom. <laughs> no, no Zoom. <laughs> Anyways, I'm still your halfwit after many months of a break. And I'm still your long-suffering historian. And we hope you listen next week. Bye. Since you've gone and